0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. Good morning. It's great to see all of you uh, this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I haven't been up here for a while, and that's not because I was fired. Um obviously, but uh, it's actually because our elders have been incredibly kind in allowing me to, actually for the last several summers, uh, take a step back from preaching in the summer to be able to focus on some other projects. And so one of the results of that ability to take a step back here in the summer has been that I am able to sit in the texts that I do preach over the summer for quite a bit longer than I'm used to. So uh, I've been looking at our passage for this morning for about six weeks now, which is a bit longer then I get to kind of like marinate in the text, right? And I'll just say this. Over the last six weeks, I have felt the Lord impress on my heart a particular burden for you. Started off small, but for about the last month, as I come into this room... And I take my seat. I usually, I try to sit on the sides or I'll sit in the back. Uh, Part of that's because I'm one of those weird people that likes to look around, you know, as I'm singing. And so uh, if you find me looking at you while we're singing, uh, I'm sorry, all right? But that's just kind of the way, that's kind of the way I am, all right? And over the last month though, I felt this burden and it's as if the Lord, as I've looked around at you and have thought about our text this morning, It's as if the Lord has continued to like impress on my heart saying, help them see that they've been changed and then help them see how they can change. Help them see how they've been changed and then help them see how they can change. It's possible that some of you have received a bit of advice at some point in your life that is perhaps the worst advice you could probably ever receive. Maybe uh, maybe it was for you in middle school or high school, and you got your yearbook, and you're passing it around to your friends, and you're all writing in the back, right? And the worst advice you could possibly receive that probably one of your friends wrote in your yearbook was, don't ever change. And if if they've told you that, you better pray to God that that doesn't stick. Like, that you don't remain your middle school self for the rest of your life, right? Like, that advice, don't ever change, should not be seen as an encouragement. It should be seen as a curse. (laughs) And you should receive it for the curse that it is. Because who would want to be their middle school self? Who would even want to be their high school self right now? But this really is one of the big questions of life, isn't it? How do we change? How do people change? How do I change? My daughter and I will, uh, on occasion, go to Barnes & Noble. I'm surprised that Barnes & Noble is still in business, honestly, you know, Amazon, and, and I think the reason, here's the reason why Barnes & Noble is still in business. I'm convinced of this. It's because the one thing that Barnes & Noble has that Amazon doesn't have is the smell. You know what I mean? Amazon smells like wherever you're at, right? Barnes & Noble, though, has that smell, you know? It's got that, like... Book, paper, ink, I don't know what it is. They they should make a candle out of that smell. But we'll we'll go to Barnes & Noble, and I was just there the other day, and the question of how do we change, how do people change, is clearly on everyone's mind, given the amount of shelf space that is devoted to helping us answer that question. Occupied by book titles like Selfish, is a superpower or time management for mortals or for you more aesthetically minded, designing your life or my personal favorite, written by the great modern philosopher 50 Cent Hustle harder, hustle smarter. That's right. (laughs) Many of you didn't know his actual name's Curtis Jackson. Well, my burden for our church this morning is fueled by the fact that many of us, many of you think and live. You could could be a Christian, and you still think and live as though internal transformation is brought about... (laughs) by external means. That if I just add a bunch of things to my life, if I just add a bunch of things to my schedule, to my list of things to do, to my habits, atomic habits was another one. If I I just do all these external things, then perhaps that will change who I am. But the truth is, that trying to change your nature by external means is like seasoning a rotten chicken. Who would do that? That, would, that makes no sense. It's like no amount of salt, no amount of spice. You have people coming over and you realize that your chicken's rotten. What do you do? Well, I'm just gonna add more seasoning to it. Nobody does that, right? The way that you fix a rotten chicken is you get a new chicken, okay? And I, you go, are you calling me a rotten chicken? Maybe a little, all right, but that's not the, po- that's not the point. But what we have here in our passage in John, in 1 John, is John once again, but in a, in a slightly different way, showing us what a changed life looks like and how that changed life comes about. So 1 John chapter 5, verse one. Check out verse one here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is The Christ. Notice, he doesn't say that everyone who believes that Jesus is a good teacher or that Jesus is a nice guy or that Jesus is a historical figure or that Jesus is a good moral example. No, everyone who believes that Jesus is Savior and Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Who is the one born of him? That's other believers that's other people who have been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, will also love others who believe that very thing. This makes all the sense in the world, considering that over and over and over again, you've probably recognized, if you've stuck with us through 1 John for a while, the cyclical nature of John's argument that over and over again, he emphasizes that the, that the love, he emphasizes the love that believers are to have towards one another because of the love that they have towards God. And once again, he's saying that if you love God, then you will love one another. But then he does something really interesting, something that he hasn't quite done yet here in 1 John, and he turns the tables on us because we've heard, as I said, multiple times that the flow of love is love for God, then love for others. If you love God, then you love other people. How can you know that you love God? We'll just look at how you love other people. But then here in verse two, he totally flips the tables on us by saying this. Look at this in verse two. This is how we know that we love God's children. In other words, how can you know that you love others? This is how you know that you love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands. This could be a whole sermon all by itself. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the extent to which you love and obey God's commands actually affects your ability to love other people. It's not only that if you love God, you'll love other people. It's that the way that we can love one another, the way that we know that we love one another, is if if we pay attention to whether or not we love God and obey his commands the extent to which you love and obey God actually affects the extent to which you can love other people. Or to put it another way, in in the words of the great theologian, John Stott, he said this, he said, love for God, I'll add, and for others, is not so much an emotional commitment as it is a moral one. In other words, do you want to love other people then ask yourself, look at your life and see, do you actually obey what God calls you to do? Because your obedience to God's commands will unavoidably affect your ability to love other people. You see what happens, here's, here's what happens. We, we tend to disconnect our relationship with God from our relationship with one another. We disconnect those things. Like I can still love you and yet my relationship with God can be nearly non-existent, fairly distant, and there can still be continual indwelling sin in my life that I've yet to conquer by his power. Like, like those two things, like, this is kind of like my personal life with God, but then I can still kind of like love you. We, we compartmentalize those things without recognizing that they're inextricably linked. I think one of the, I think one of the ways that this has happened kind of religiously has, been, has come about by an over-application of a doctrine that was re-emphasized, and I would say rightly so, during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And that doctrine was the priesthood of all believers. And what the priesthood of all believers uh, meant what Luther was emphasizing in the Reformation with the priesthood of all believers was that now the scriptures shouldn't only be accessible to the professional clergy. That access to the Word of God is not only for the professionals, but it is, it is for all people because all people are indwelled by His Holy Spirit, and therefore, all people should have access to the Scriptures to be able to read for themselves, understand for themselves, and be led by the Holy Spirit in response to them. That is a good and right doctrine, but Notice what happens when, if you so emphasize now your personal quiet time with the scriptures, because I'm indwelled by the Spirit, I can read the Bible for myself, and pair that with the rampant expressive individualism that that developed particularly in the West from the 18th to the 21st century, what you end up getting is a kind of Christian spirituality that is that so focuses on personal devotions, personal reading, personal prayer, personal worship, personal spirituality, that we fail to recognize that if you are a Christian, that you are a member of the body of Christ. That you are a part of a greater whole. And that as a... that as a member of the body of Christ, his church, that your love for God and obedience to his commands actually affects your fellow believers in the same way that your hands obedience to the brain unavoidably affects the rest of your body. If your hands just go rogue and just stop listening to your brain, you better believe that that doesn't only affect your hands. So what's he saying here in verse two? He's saying, pay attention to your actions and to your affections, not simply because it affects you, but because it unavoidably affects others. You see the modern creed of do whatever you want as long as it doesn't affect anyone else, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else is totally upended here. Because what scripture is saying is that the way that you personally relate to God actually affects your ability to love and relate to one another. Our obedience or our disobedience to God always, always, you you, you cannot rig this game your obedience or disobedience to God will always directly or indirectly affect those around you. And I'd say probably most often in a hundred ways that we actually can't see. Look at verse three. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Do you see John? He, he's, he's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. How do you love God? Love others. How do you love others? Love God and obey his commands. But not only does loving his commands love others, but it's also an indicator of your love for God. Back and forth, back and forth. How do you love God? You obey his commands. Isn't it interesting that as you read throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of Psalms, the, the psalmist often saying that his delight is in the law of the Lord, Now, when you think about it, that's kind of weird, right? That his delight would be in the law of the Lord. Wouldn't you think like for us, if we're we're writing that Psalm, we'd go, my delight is in the love of the Lord. My delight is in the light of the Lord. My delight is in the kindness of the Lord, the generosity of the Lord. But he says, but our delight is in the law of the Lord. And isn't it the case often for us, when we think of law, we think of rigid, impersonal, seemingly arbitrary commands. We go, how in the world could the law of the Lord, could the commands of the Lord, could the imperatives of the Christian life, how in the world could that actually be a delight? How? Well, C.S. Lewis said, in his reflection on the Psalms, he said, delight in the law is like a pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. Uh, A couple summers ago, our family went down to Phoenix. We've been to Phoenix several times. One of my favorite things to do when we're down in the Phoenix area is to hike Camelback Mountain. Uh, It's not... It's not a long hike, but it's also not an easy one. And so that's, that's part of the fun, right? You wanna go in really early in the day so it's not super hot and also the parking lot isn't packed, right, but so on this particular occasion a couple summers ago, I had the whole family there. It wasn't just me and Sarah. And so we kind of hiked a little ways up, you know, all of us. And then, and then they went back down, cause it's like, man, I, this just wouldn't be wise to bring children, you know, past this point. And so I kind of went on by myself and on the way down, I'm not exactly sure how this happened. Uh, it wasn't really even intentional, but I, find, I found myself lost on Camelback Mountain. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm no longer on the path. There's, there's more you know, weeds and ro- there's, there's a lot of things going on. And I'm getting to like cliffs, right? And I'm, I'm not freaking out at this point, but I'm a little concerned, okay? And so, and all I have is kind of like the faint, you know, rumble of people who are actually on the path. And I just try as, as carefully and as quickly as I can to get my to to find my way back to the actual path to 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 get down from this mountain. And you better believe that I delighted in finding the narrow path. That's what it means to delight in the law. Of the Lord. It's to recognize that the paths of the Lord are the way to life. That whether you intentionally or unintentionally veer from His path, that when you see His command, when you see His law, you recognize the goodness of the lawgiver and the rightness of the paths that He gives for us to walk. Now this is now this is a bit where it gets a little crazy, right? We're here in verse 3. Because you might be tempted to think that as you look at the scriptures and even as you as you be a Christian, right, that you know uh, for many of you, you've probably had the experience where you, you come to be a Christian and you're, you're, it's, it's an exhilarating experience. But then over time, you begin to realize like this is actually a hard life. Like the call of Christ is not a life of comfort, but it's a life of sacrifice, of dying to yourself, of taking up your cross and following him. And you begin to possibly, maybe you thought, is, it, is, is the Christian life actually impossible? I, I literally, as I finished. Studying this sermon this week, I got an email that the subject title of the email was Is Living the Christian Life Supposed to Feel Impossible? And then here he goes and he says, in the end of verse three, For this is what the love of God is to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. His commands are not a burden. His call on your life is not impossible. You go, how can that that be? We live in a world that's so opposed to the values of the kingdom of God, that's so opposed to the belief and the conduct of genuine Christianity. How is it that following God in a fallen world is not a tremendous burden? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse four, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. How is a Christian life, how are the commands of God not a tremendous burden? How is the Christian life not impossible? It's because if you are in Christ, you are a world conqueror. There you go, Jake. Aren't those who want to conquer the world like the tyrants of human history? Like haven't we fought wars to ensure that a person or a, you know, a group of people or country like wouldn't conquer the world? And now you're, now you're looking at me as like a John Deere engineer a stay-at-home mom, a VGM employee, a mud advertising manager, a middle schooler, or a high schooler, or a college student, like I, can't, I can hardly even conquer my desire to indulge in copious amounts of ice cream. And yet you're telling me that I'm a world conqueror? What are you talking about? Now, clearly what he's not saying, this isn't like conquering the world in the geopolitical sense, okay? This isn't you like taking land, right? No, what he's talking about, when he says that you have conquered the world, the world here that he's talking about is the worldly tendency to satisfy your own sinful cravings. Which I don't put ice cream in the sinful cravings category, by the way. I think that's a gift of God. We're gonna eat it in the new heavens and new earth. It's gonna be great. Like holy perfected cows making glorious ice cream. That's gonna be fantastic. what he's saying is that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, that you, that he has conquered and you now have the ability to conquer those worldly motivations and desires that exist deep down in your heart and mind. Because you know you. This is why some of you you are uh, journalers, maybe you have a diary. But this is why, even if you journal or have a diary, you don't write everything that is in your mind. You don't. I know you don't, because in, and here's why. It's because you know that if you wrote down absolutely everything that you ever think, if someone found that and read it, you'd go to jail. So that's why you don't do it. That's why some of you don't even journal. You're like, even if I wrote half of what comes into my mind, I'm probably going to jail. So I don't even want to find that. Like, that's why. And yet, what John is saying is that the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God conquers all those worldly tendencies and desires. Now, how can that be? Well, if you remember back to chapter four, didn't John just tell us that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world? So do you see what this means? This means that if you are in Christ and if Christ is in you, this means that there is no desire, that there's no addiction, that there is no sin, there is no ungodly tendency that has the absolute final say in your life. The book of James in, in chapter one tells us that that unlike shifting shadows, God does not change. And what does it mean? What, what, is, what is one of the glorious implications of the fact that God does not change? That God is the only one in the universe that doesn't change means that you can change. Change to say that you'll never change, to think that you'll never change, to think that you've been been stuck in this sin pattern, in this cycle of your life for so long that there's no way you could ever get out of it is to attribute to yourself something that is only true of God himself. Don't think so highly of yourself to think that you can never change. And what John is saying is is not only can we change change, like as if it's like a hypothetical possibility, it's an option at a buffet that you can just have. No, what he's saying is that we have been changed because the one who conquered the world now lives in us. And now since Jesus Christ is the one who conquered the world, John's gonna take the next several verses to explain to us in a perhaps confusing way Who who exactly is this one who conquered the world that now lives in you and enables you to conquer the world in you? Look at verses uh, six through nine. So he's explaining who Jesus Christ is, who the son of God is. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. Now you go, what in the world are you talking about? What is with this water, blood, spirit stuff? Can you just speak in plain English, right? What does this mean? I think what this means, and, and, and many commentators would agree, that when John is referring to the water, here that Jesus came by water that that is a reference to his baptism so Jesus when he began his earthly ministry the very first thing the very beginning of his earthly ministry in fact the thing that marked the beginning of his earthly ministry was his baptism as he was baptized by John the Baptist because you see Jesus didn't just come to die he came to live And so why is his baptism significant? It's because it marked the beginning of his ministry as he lived the perfect life that Adam couldn't live, as he lived the perfect life that Noah couldn't live, as he lived the perfect life that Israel couldn't live, as he lived the perfect life that you can't live. And when Jesus was baptized, when he was immersed in the waters, it was the mark of the beginning of his earthly ministry, which was the fulfillment of the perfectly obedient life that no human or group ever had or ever could live. So that's Jesus came by water, meaning he came in the flesh to live a perfect life. So if, so if water is Jesus's ministry and obedience, then blood is a reference to his atoning sacrifice. So not only did he, just, not only did he come to live the perfect life, but he came to die an atoning death. Water and blood, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testified to both. Now, this seems a bit obscure. You go, why, why, is, why is John making this point? This seems obscure to us, but to the original audience, remember, this probably wouldn't have been as obscure because remember that the audience that John is writing to is a bunch of people who are still uh, part of the church, who have watched a lot of their friends leave the church and reject the faith, and who have begun to teach false doctrines, including doctrines about who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish. And so to believe, as these people who had left the church did, to believe, track with me here, that Jesus came only by water, that is to believe that he only came as a that he was only a man with a popular ministry, came only by water, but not by blood. Because it's like, well, God isn't bloodthirsty and he doesn't require atoning sacrifices. Like Jesus didn't need to die for the sins of the world. Like Jesus' death was simply a result of a mob trying to, trying to obtain power. And he was, he was the quintessential archetypal victim of history. Like, he, came, he came to be a good moral example, but there was no atoning reason for his sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? To believe that he only came by water, but not by blood was to say that Jesus was only a good moral example, but was not a necessary atonement for sin. And if Jesus is only a good example to follow, but is not the atoning sacrifice, for the sin of the world, then the only hope that any of us have of conquering those worldly tendencies that plague all of us, the only hope that we have is to just try as hard as we can to imitate Jesus' moral example. Just try as hard as you can. The only hope that we would have is moralism and striving. The only hope that we have would be gritting our teeth and trying harder would be, hitting, would be hitting play on the next podcast. That'd be the only hope. Help, help me know how to change. It'd be flipping the next page or finding the next book to tell us how we can be changed. But what John is saying is that because Jesus was both God and man, because he lived, he died And he rose again because he conquered the world and the fool's gold of its desires and tendencies. He's saying that if you have faith in this Jesus, verse 11, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. John is not unclear here at all. To have the son means to have eternal life. You say, what what in the world does it mean to have the son? What does it mean to have the son? What it means to have the son is it means quite simply to recognize the problem of your sin and the problem of your self-righteousness and to cling to the finished work of Jesus Christ by faith as the basis of your salvation. That's what it means to be a Christian to turn away from your sin and to turn away from your self-righteousness and to receive by faith his perfect, complete, finished work on your behalf. That's what it means to have the son. But the one who does not have the son does not have life. Which means that if you do not receive forgiveness of your sins by faith in Jesus Christ, and what the Bible teaches is that when you die, you will spend an eternity in hell, separated from the God that you rejected in this life. Now you might say, that's, that's, the most, that's, that's one of the more offensive things that someone could say. Now I think that the reason, one of the reasons, why this teaching, the, the teaching of hell, why this teaching of the Christian faith is so offensive is actually not because of the, the suggestion of hell. You say, what are you talking about? I go, I actually don't think that most people are, are primarily offended by hell. Follow me here. I think that hell is offensive is because the Christian solution that is offered to avoiding hell is actually one that calls you to submit to someone other than yourself. I think perhaps at the root of the offense of hell is actually being offended by the suggestion of submission. That you must relinquish power and control of your, of your own life and hand that over to Jesus Christ. That's offensive because many of us define freedom as the ability to do, to think, to be whatever we want to be, to express ourselves in whatever way we want to express ourselves. Like freedom is, is a life absent of restraint But according to scripture, freedom isn't having the power to do whatever you want, isn't having the power to control your own life. No, the Christian definition of freedom is having the ability and the resources to embrace and enjoy that which ultimately brings flourishing according to God's definition. That's what true freedom is, is your ability to actually step into the life that God calls you to live because God's definition of flourishing is true flourishing. I've used this illustration before, but imagine a fish getting so tired of the oppressive restraint of water. And that fish is thinking, who does water think it is? to tell me where I can and can't swim, what I can and can't do. I'm in charge of my life. Why should I I have to submit to the boundaries that water has placed upon me? I am trapped within this water. And so this fish, all confident in itself, musters up the courage and the strength and swims and swims and swims and flops himself up onto the shore. Now, how free is that fish. Sure, in one sense, he's free, in the sense that, yeah, he's been able to express his own autonomy. And yet all of us know that a fish on the shore is not an expression of life, but is one of the surest pathways to death. You see, to have Christ is to have life. To reject Christ is to reject the only true peace, fulfillment, and security in this life and in the life to come. You see, you want, do you want to change? Do you want to be changed? Then recognize that it's only by having faith in the one who conquered the world for you that you can have any hope of conquering the world in you. Now, when you look around at our world and when you look at, it, when you look at your own life, it would, it would be easy to believe, it would be easy to be tempted to believe that the evil in this world is insurmountable and the power of the temptations that you struggle with are irresistible. The evil in this world is insurmountable and the temptations, the struggles that I struggle with are irresistible. And when that happens, what, what, should, what are we to do as believers? What are we to do? We're to come back to John, 1 John chapter 5 and to be reminded once again that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that because he lived the perfect life, he died the sufficient death, and he rose again, conquering the world and its power. That his conquering power now lives in you. What do you do when you're overwhelmed by the evil of the world? You run to the Word of God. What do you do when you're overcome by the worldly desires that that feel, that feel like they have so much power over you and you feel as though you're 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 incapable of resisting? What do you do? You run to the word of God. What do you do when you're despairing of your genuineness as a believer because of how strong those worldly desires are? You run to the word of God. You see, you look at verse 13 and you see, you see that he says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Did, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say so that you may feel that you have eternal life. Man, you're going you're gonna to not feel like you're a Christian a lot. But he didn't write these things so that you would have a good feeling. He wrote these things so that you would know. Oh, if you you rely on your feelings to be an anchor for your soul in the midst of the storms and the uncertainties of life, you'll be whisked away like an umbrella in the wind. He did not write these things so that you would always feel like a great Christian. He wrote these things so that you would know. Because when you're anchored to the truth of who God says you are in His Word, it's then that you'll have the strength and the fortitude to endure the storm and to conquer the sin that still rages within you. Imagine what it would look like. Imagine what it would look like if the thousand plus people who call Candeo Church home, imagine what it would look like if we were so captivated, so captured by who Christ is in us and who we are in him to have such a rooted identity in him. Imagine the way that it would affect the way that we act and interact on social media. That because we are in Christ and he is in us, that because we have the son of God, we can conquer the worldly desire to elevate ourselves and to denigrate those who disagree with us. Imagine the way that it would change the way that we parent our children because we are in Christ and he is in us, that we can conquer the desire to worship our children as our ultimate treasure. Or we can conquer the desire or the tendency to crush them under the weight of our expectations because we're more interested in forming them into our image than we are into forming them into the image of Christ. Imagine what this would mean for the way that we engage with our society politically. That because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that we can conquer the worldly desire to make earth our eternal home instead of longing for the glories of heaven. Imagine what this would do for those of us who are suffering. that while we certainly desire healing from our suffering, that because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we would also desire holiness in our suffering. That we wouldn't only pray, God, heal me. That's a good prayer. But that we would also pray, and God, if you don't, continue to make me holy. Continue to form me into the image of the one who has conquered the world on my behalf and give me the power to conquer my own sin in the midst of my suffering. Imagine the impact we could have in our families, our workplaces, our community, and our world. Imagine the glory God could receive and the good that we could enjoy if we would live our lives as the conquerors we truly are, as we follow him and conquer the sin that lives in us. Would we be that church and let's be that kind of people? Let's pray. Oh Jesus, would you etch into our hearts? Would you carve it as in stone? into our minds that we are yours and you are ours. That because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, the conquering power of your Holy Spirit lives within us and gives us the ability gives us the desire to conquer that sin, which still so easily entangles. Oh Lord, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to stray. Remind us of who we are. Empower us to live according to that new identity that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.